it is good to be in the sanctuary with some of you and to know that many more of you are out there uh, watching and here in spirit. It's been a weird year, right? It's hard to believe it's been a year since uh, we've all been here, but it is good to be changing things up. Good to see that uh, we are moving forward. It feels like, as we've talked about a lot today, a lot of transition is happening, right? A lot of things are changing. The clock's moved symbolically of the, uh, you know, all the change that's coming. Uh, COVID restrictions are changing. The weather is getting nicer. Everything is changing. And today in Mark, we're going to see a point where everything changes too. That's a segue. Um, the, we are at the climax of Mark, okay? So you may be thinking, wait, we're at the climax of Mark. We're in Mark 8. We're about halfway through Mark. Climaxes usually happen right 90% of the way through the movie, right? Isn't, you know, isn't it kind of the very end? But that's not how things work in classical literature. We think of movies and, and books and stuff nowadays as having the climax at the very end, sort of the highest tension point. In classical literature, it tends to happen in the middle. Everything before the climax is building up to it, and there's some crisis moment, there's some tension that needs to get resolved for the protagonist. And then after that point, everything is different. You get kind of the unwinding action, and what are all the implications of that change? And that's what we're going to see in Mark today. This is the climax of Mark. Everything is changing in Mark. Every, all of Mark, the first eight chapters of Mark have been building to this point. And from this point, everything's going to unwind. And so we're going to look at what that is, what that means, and, and sort of what that tells us about the King Jesus. So um, we're going to jump into the text. And as I read it, I want you to pay attention for what surprises you about this text today. There's going to be a lot of things. It's probably a familiar passage. And so it's easy when we read familiar passages to just kind of have it go in one year and out the other. But pay attention to, there are a lot of strange things in this text. There are a lot of unexpected, surprising, even shocking things. And so I want you to make note of those as we read through it. So I'm going to read, uh, yeah, and you guys, I think it'll be on screen. You guys can read along. Uh, this is starting in verse 22. So it says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for, the sake, for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right. What was surprising? Turn, if you're, if you're here, do you have friends with you or whatever, uh, family with you? T- you can turn and just briefly share what stood out to you as surprising if you're at home and you're watching this. Uh, just 30 seconds, talk among your family. What was strange? What was shocking? What was surprising? Go ahead and, yeah, share with a, with a buddy. All right, I'd be curious to um, hear what some of you guys saw. I suppose if you're watching online, you could throw them in the chat. Um, There's a lot of things that are strange here. There are a lot of things that are unexpected. We're going to enumerate a few of them, make sure we saw um, some of these things. This isn't necessarily an exhaustive list. But we'll start with noting the method of Jesus' healing. He spits on the man's eyes. That's strange, right? That does not seem like, oh, yeah, of course. What else would he do, right? He spits on his eyes, puts his hands on him. That's kind of strange. Um, the next thing we see that is strange, and this one, I hope you notice, it's really important. Jesus is having sort of an off day, right? The healing doesn't work very well the first time. I kind of see, but men are like big blurry trees, right? This is Jesus. He's, he's supposed to heal on the first try, right? But it takes him two attempts to, to get the successful healing. That's strange. After the healing works, he tells the guy not to go home so no one will know that Jesus has healed him. And then when the disciples say he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, what's Jesus' response? He warns them not to tell anyone. Isn't that kind of the point? Aren't we supposed to tell people he's the Christ, but he's telling his disciples, you're right, I am the Christ. Don't tell anyone. When he has this conversation, Peter says, you're the Christ. And he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. I have to die. And Peter rebukes him. Peter has the audacity to pull him aside and say, like, no, 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 Jesus, you got that wrong. And it's, it's contentious, right? Jesus exclaims to him, get behind me, Satan. That's, that's intense, right? That's the kind of thing that your praying doesn't happen at your family Thanksgiving, that this is, you know, oh, we're having conflict over politics, over this or that, and someone's yelling, get behind me, Satan, right? That's when you know things have gotten really bad. This is a pretty intense conflict here between Jesus and Peter. And finally, he closes out this story, which seems like it should be one of hope and victory, right? He's the Christ, he's the Messiah. But it ends on a down note. You have to lose your life to follow me. If you're ashamed of me, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory. It ends pretty somber, pretty dark. For something that I'm claiming is the climax of Mark, this ends on a pretty sour note. So we have a lot to unpack here. We have a lot to make sense of. And to see that, we need to understand where we've been in Mark up until now. So up to this point, Mark has had this repeated theme of who is Jesus? That's, if you had to boil it down to one question that's going on in the first eight chapters, that's probably the one you'd come to. Everybody's been asking, who is this? The crowds ask, who is this that preaches with such authority? The Pharisees have asked, who is this that forgives sins? Even the disciples have asked, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Ironically, there's only one set of people in the, uh, in the first eight chapters of Mark who seem to know who Jesus is, and that's the demon. 
They keep saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? They're the only ones who seem to get who Jesus is. Everybody else has been asking, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? That's the central question of Mark up until this point. And even when the demons start to spill the beans, Jesus commands them to be silent and they can't tell anybody. And so there's been this tension of who is Jesus going on. We also, it's worth noting um, the word Messiah or Christ, those are just the same word in different languages, so I'll, I'll use them interchangeably. The word Messiah hasn't shown up since the very first verse of Mark. We see here Jesus says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. That word has not come up since the very first verse of Mark. No character in Mark has used that word. And this is Mark's way of kind of indicating to us that's the primary question we're asking. Who is this Jesus? Is he actually the Messiah? Why is he doing the things he's doing? Or is that what the Messiah is supposed to do? Why hasn't anyone recognized that he is the Messiah? Why hasn't Jesus taken on that mantle? So that's been a pivotal question um, up until this point. Who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? And in, especially in the last couple chapters, Jesus seems to have really zoomed in on the disciples and their experience and their answer to that question. He's done a lot of things with the disciples in private in the last couple chapters. He's done some teaching in private so the crowds don't get to hear everything they hear. He's done some healings in private just with the disciples. Um, he seems to be less focused on teaching the crowds. And over the last couple chapters, really focused on helping the disciples. Are they going to figure out who Jesus really is? Are they going to get the right answer to that question? And they've been struggling. And finally, um, the last thing about where we've been in Mark leading up to this point is to remember what, what Steve uh, preached on last week with the parable of the sower. And Jesus has been warning his audience, the crowds as well as the disciples, don't be like the people that Isaiah prophesied about, who are ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. That's a real danger. And it seems there's a lot of tension going on that the disciples are in real danger of missing out on the Messiah right in front of them. And that's where we come into today's sort of double healing miracle. And so we ask ourselves, why doesn't this work right away? And that's a legitimate question that's kind of hard to, hard to work through, right? It's the kind of question we should be doing in Bible study. Wait, something weird here happened. Why didn't the healing work? Well, maybe it did work, right? We say, uh, well, Jesus doesn't fail at things, right? So maybe this is just kind of a weird way of it working, but it did work. It, it doesn't seem likely, right? It starts out and it's very clearly... Uh, blurry, and then it says his eyes were opened, his sight restored, he saw everything clearly, right? Three ways of saying kind of the same thing, open eyes, sight restored, and seen clearly. There's a very clear contrast between after the second healing, after the second touch, when he can really see clearly versus the first where everything's blurry. It really didn't work right the first time. So, okay, why not? Uh, maybe the guy didn't have faith, right? We've seen that elsewhere in the Gospels that, um, for example, Jesus, it says he can't heal anyone in his hometown because they had so little faith. And we don't know exactly what that means or how that works. And that's kind of beyond the scope of this sermon to me to, you know, say, what does it mean that Jesus can't do that? But maybe that's it. Maybe this man didn't have any faith and that's something going on. But that's not really in the text, right? We don't see the concept of faith brought into this explicitly. And if it is in there, it's actually probably in the man's favor. This passage is reminiscent of in chapter 2, when um, some friends bring a paralytic to Jesus to be healed, and they cut the hole in the roof and lower him in, right? It's a famous story. And Jesus says, because of the faith of your friends, you're healed. And there's something similar going on here, where the friends, again, lead him, uh, lead this man to Jesus. This is something Jesus before said, hey, that's great. There's faith in that. I'm going to heal. And so it seems unlikely that something is going on here where the man is unqualified, where he doesn't have enough faith. So, why the healing failure? 
Why didn't it work? I propose that it's not about the man. It's not about Jesus. Jesus does this deliberately for the disciples' experience. He means to fail the first time or kind of get it the first time and then fully complete it the second time because he needs the disciples to understand something. We don't have time to get into it here because it would take several hours, but we can unpack uh, the two chapters leading up to this and how Jesus has been setting his disciples up to ask that question, who is this? And we're going we're gonna to freeze over it from, from the 30,000 foot view to see that he leads them through a sequence of events that he thinks should help them understand who he is to reach the correct conclusion, this is the Messiah. Only it doesn't seem to work. And so what does Jesus do? He takes them through the whole cycle again. There's a chart that's uh, hopefully going to pop up here. Yeah, I hope you can read that. Um, there's this, this clear parallels of these two cycles that start uh, at the very end of, of chapter 6. We see Jesus feed a multitude, you know, first 5,000, then the 4,000. There's, um, there's a lot in that. There's a lot of Old Testament uh, stuff in that kind of parroting Moses and, and things that the disciples could realize are, are pointing to Jesus's identity. There is this, uh, an event where he crosses the sea, lands on the other side, and then immediately gets into a conflict with the Pharisees. He has a conversation with the 12 about bread that they fail to understand, and bread's another kind of loaded word we don't have time to go into. That, but these are things that they should be recognizing. There's another healing with spit, very, you know, not that common. So there's a, there's a clear um, connection between those two. And then we see then the crowd say, Look at this man. He's done all things well. He even, you know, opens the ears of the deaf man. Like, this is great. There's a confession of faith. But the disciples don't seem to get it yet. And so Jesus leads them through the process again, starting at the beginning of eight. He, once again, he feeds a multitude. Then he takes them across the sea, lands at the other side, gets into a conflict with the Pharisees, has a conversation about bread that they still fail to understand. And that's where we get to this healing. This healing was spit. This is part of a cycle that they need to see and to go through and to understand so that they can come to that conclusion, who do you say I am? Let's zoom in on the, the, the healings in chapter 7 and 8 and just kind of give you one example of sort of the parallels here and, and what it might be showing us. Um, in both healings, some, some friends bring the afflicted man. In the first, he's deaf and mute. In the second, the man is blind, right? And remember, where were we? Watch out, don't be ever seeing, blind, but never perceiving. Don't be ever hearing, deaf, but never understanding, right? Jesus has been telling them, don't be blind of heart, don't be deaf of heart. And then we see him healing a deaf man and a blind man in these parallel examples. In both cases, Jesus takes the afflicted man away from the crowds to heal him, right? He just goes off with the, with the afflicted person and the disciples, kind of a small group, kind of does it in private, even though he started out with crowds in both cases. In both cases, Jesus spits and touches the afflicted area. And in both cases, Jesus tells the healed person not to go tell everybody, to keep it a secret, which again fits with that idea of kind of pulling away from everybody. The only major difference is that the first time it worked totally on the first try, and the second time it didn't really work. He needed the two phases. Why the two phases? And why does he heal them but then command them not to tell everybody if, you know, people are going to figure it out? Why the secrecy? I think this fills in the picture that these miracles, what Jesus is doing and what Mark's telling us about here, is primarily for the disciples' understanding. I mean, Jesus certainly cares about the afflicted people, right? He's helping them, but he's really being deliberate here, trying to bring this to the attention of the disciples. You need to open your eyes and see what's going on here. This whole cycle has served as an object lesson of what Jesus is doing with the disciples. They are the blind men. 
right? They're the ones who have been touched by Jesus and they're kind of getting it, but they don't totally get it yet. And so they need another touch. They need this whole cycle to happen again for them to open their eyes and see clearly. He led them through it the first time. They kind of saw, but they need another touch to see it clearly. So he leads them through again. And this is what sets up the climax of, of Mark. There's going to be another chance for a, a confession of faith. Will they continue to harden their hearts? Will they continue to be blind and deaf to what Jesus is telling them? Or will their eyes be truly open to see who Jesus is? That's where we come into this, what's called the confession of the Christ. When, Jesus, uh, when Peter, for the first time in Mark, since the very first verse, says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And so, let's look at that. Jesus sets this up. Who do the crowds say I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist or another prophet. But Jesus isn't actually that concerned with who the crowds say I am, right? This isn't an abstraction. He wants the disciples to be answering this question for, them, for themselves. But who do you say I am? You've seen more than the crowds. You've seen me do all these things. You've heard my teaching. Who do you say I am? And Peter gets it right. You're the Christ. And if we've been studying through the first eight chapters of the book and we've been wrestling with this mystery of are they going to get it, we should be celebrating, right? Yes, he finally got it. He finally got the right answer. This is what we've been hoping the disciples, the heroes of our story would figure out. He really is the Christ. But everything gets really dark pretty quickly. Once he says that, Jesus is like, all right, now here's, what, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be in conflict with the, with the religious authorities. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, right? The audacity, right? We talked about already. This is an intense sort of shocking amount of conflict. And this may seem ridiculous to us, but it's not ridiculous to Peter. The fact that he can go from such a height of recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah to such a low of confronting the man he just said is the Messiah is, illuminates um, the fact that it was hard for Peter and everyone else to really understand what Jesus' mission as the Messiah was. See, the term Messiah is a title uh, from the Old Testament that means anointed one. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to characters like David or Saul and prophetically looking forward to this Messiah who is ultimately going to come and deliver and rule over Israel. It's not, it's special. It's not just like, oh, it's some selected person. It's the chosen person. It's God's deliverance mechanism. Very regularly, this idea is connected to God delivering the people from some pagan oppression. It's about the king who's going to rescue everybody. And the characteristic that all these anointed kings in the Old Testament had in common was they were conquering kings, right? They were warrior kings. And so every first century Israelite was sure that the Messiah would be a political military leader who would come and deliver Israel from the Romans by starting a military revolution. If your friend told you, hey, the Messiah is coming to town, you'd run home and get your sword because you were sure you were going to war. And they were sure his kingdom would be like that of David. They would conquer the pagans in battle. The Messiah would be the greatest warrior in history, and his kingdom he established would be the greatest military power. That is why the crowds are saying he's Elijah, or a prophet, right? Why don't any of the crowds know who he is? Why can't they figure out he's the Messiah? He's clearly a man of God, right? He's doing miracles, he's preaching, and everyone's saying he's clearly a man of God. But we know what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is supposed to come at the head of an army. So Jesus can't be that, right? The crowd say he can't be that because he's not the head of an army. He must just be a forebearer of the kingdom of God, right? He must be a prophet who's coming before. The real Messiah must be coming behind him at the head of an army. And Peter thinks the same thing. Peter pulls him aside because he and everyone else is sure that Jesus has gotten the script wrong. Jesus, we've seen what you've done. We believe you're the Messiah. 
but we need to explain something to you. We need to tell you what that means. Um, you said you're going to be rejected by the Jewish religious establishment and killed. No, messiahs don't do that. Messiahs win, right? That's what's going on for, for, for Peter. He feels like he needs to correct Jesus. If you've ever had a toddler, you know this uh, feeling of right word, wrong concept. My son is almost three, um, and he's got that where it's like he's, he'll repeat things to us that we've said to him, not necessarily knowing what they mean, or he'll talk about concepts but not really understand everything about it. One of the things he's been asking a lot recently is, when are we going to do Christmas again? And where are the decorations? And where's the tree, right? And he kind of knows about Christmas, right? He knows it was a lot of fun. He knows there's decorations, and he got presents. Um, he even knows that it's about baby Jesus's birthday, but he really doesn't understand what Christmas is about. We keep trying to explain it to him. It's not going to come for 10 more months, and that's such a long time he can't really conceptualize of it. So he's like, but when are we going to do decorations again, right? He's got some of the pieces. He's kind of got a blurry vision of Christmas, but he doesn't really understand it. In a much more intense way, uh, in a much more high-stakes way, that's what's going on for Peter. He's in a similar boat. He's got the right word. You're the Christ. But he really doesn't get what that means. Jesus is not the king that they were expecting, and he never has been. Everything up until this point in Mark has been a process to bring the characters in Mark and the reader to the conclusion this is the real Messiah. Everything after this point in Mark will be explaining what that actually means. It's not about glorious victory, at least not at first. It's about sacrifice, shame, and death. You all need to understand that I am the Messiah. Great, now that you know that, you all need to understand what that means. That's the turning point. That's, the, that's why it's the climax, because everything is going to be different from here. This is why he's been telling people not to say who he is, right? It's not because he wanted to hide his messianic identity from them or trick them, but it's because everyone else is going to have the right word, wrong concept too. And if word starts spreading that he's the Messiah, it's going to work against Jesus' purposes. He wants them to know he's the Messiah, but he needs them to understand what that really means. If you want to follow this Messiah into his glory, you don't pick up your sword. You pick up your cross. You have to follow him into rejection, shame, and defeat. That's the path that lays before them. And it's really, it's hard to overstate how shocking and painful this call is to them. To us, the cross is a religious symbol, right? We understand what it means, but it's, it's a relatively positive thing, but it's not to them. It's the symbol of brutal murder at the hands of people who care nothing about them. And Jesus isn't even telling them, I'm going to die in glorious battle. Maybe that's something a warrior would do, a sacrifice a warrior would make. He's going to be extrajudicially tortured and murdered by people who fear him, despite his innocence, and he's not going to put up a fight. And he tells his followers, if they really want to be in on the revolution of the Messiah, they have to be willing to do the same. It's not what they signed up for. But it's worth noting, even in this call to follow him into suffering and sacrifice, there is hope. Notice the glory isn't gone. It's subtle in those last couple verses, but it's there. The Son of Man, which is a title that Jesus is using from uh, Daniel 7, is, is associated with glory. And he talks about when the Son of Man comes in his Father's glory with the angels. The glory is going to come. And everyone was already confident of that. But the glory is going to come after the suffering, after the cross. And that's what people don't seem to understand. The path to glory is through the cross. It's through suffering. The climax of Mark. I am the Messiah. Now I'm going to have to tell you what that means. Everything's going to change. So if you're reading along with Mark at home, pay attention to that now. He's been doing a lot. It, things become a lot darker after this, right? She's been doing a lot of teaching to the crowds. It becomes a lot more focused on 
his death, the suffering, the hardship that's going to happen. He three times has to have the same discussion with his disciples. Just to be clear, I'm going to die. And they never get it. Um, in fact, the night before Jesus is, is actually killed or before he's betrayed, he tells them, hey, just so you know, I'm going to die tomorrow. And they're all like, hmm, a hard teaching. What could this mean? I'm going to die tomorrow. And they're like, yes, yes, right, interesting. You know, they don't get it, right? This is so hard for them to wrap their minds around. All right. So that's what's going on in this little chunk of Mark. Let's talk about what it tells us about Jesus the King. Let's try and synthesize. What do we take away from this? The first is that Jesus is a suffering king, but he's also a king who calls his subjects to follow him into suffering. Right? I, think it's, I think we tend to have a pretty disordered relationship to suffering. Many of us, we want to avoid suffering, or we think that if we follow God, we really shouldn't have to suffer. Right? Tragedy shouldn't befall me if I'm doing everything I should, if I'm going to church on Sundays, if I'm following God. I shouldn't have to sacrifice things. I shouldn't have to sacrifice my idols, academic success, romantic fulfillment, financial security, and so on. I shouldn't have to suffer by giving up on those things. But in this kingdom, the king tells us the path to glory is consistently through suffering, sacrifice, and loss. And it's worth noting, he doesn't tell us why or how, only that it is. But he promises that no matter the suffering, it can be redeemed. I remember when I started my career in ministry pretty early on, something my supervisor told me. He told me that God's goal is not to minimize suffering, it's to maximize glory. And that really changed how I thought about things. It changed how I shaped things because on some intellectual level, I knew that his job, his goal wasn't to minimize my suffering, but it still kind of felt like it should be, right? If I'm doing everything right, there shouldn't be much suffering. It's just not in the Bible. That's not what Jesus is about. He's not about minimizing suffering. He's about maximizing glory. This idea of following a king into suffering um, came in a stark relief for me a few years ago. Uh, we had a student get involved with our ministry who was a grad student from Iran. He um, was only in, in Illinois for a sem uh, semester, so not very long, but he got connected to some of the students that I worked with. And he started becoming curious about Christianity. And through this process that was really amazing and, and hard to believe in a couple months, went from, um, you know, coming from a Muslim country with no interest in Christianity to deciding to follow Jesus. And we were all so excited, right? This is awesome. He's become a Christian. God's moved in such amazing ways. It was so fast. It was such a great effort by the community to be praying for him and caring about him and, and inviting him to things and um, leading him to Jesus. And it, it seemed like just all positive. But where this story went over the next year is he told his brother that he'd become a Christian, asked his brother not to tell his dad, but his brother told his dad. And his dad couldn't handle that. He disowned him, right? Told him he can't come back home. Um, and, and this guy ended up uh, seeking religious asylum to stay in the United States because he was worried about what was going to happen if he returned home. And so we, we all had this excitement about him becoming a Christian, and that was still real. But it sank in to me, it, for, uh, for me in a way that I've never had to wrestle with personally of the deep, deep cost for him to follow Jesus. And in my mind, I already believed like, oh yeah, the good news is worth it, right? It's worth following Jesus no matter the sacrifice. But this made me really wrestle with that. I just contributed to a process that made this guy's family abandon him and he could never go home again potentially, right? Do I really believe this is good enough news that I can in good conscience say, I think that was the right decision. I do, but I had to wrestle with that emotionally, not just cognitively, because the cost for him was heavy. The cost for me to follow Jesus is not that heavy. I have to give up some things. I have to sacrifice some things, but it's nothing like what he experienced. But that's the cost 
of discipleship for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. And I had to go, do I really believe that a good God would call him into that suffering? I do. But I needed to grasp the weight of that reality. He's a suffering king who calls his followers into suffering, to follow him into suffering. He's also an unexpected king, right? No one can wrap their heads around the fact that the Messiah is the suffering king. Our conception of glory and power is just not the same as what God's is. Many things in his kingdoms are the opposite of what we would expect them to be. And so just like the Pharisees, we're in danger of being very religious people who miss out on what he's doing because we're pretty sure we know how it should go and Jesus isn't doing it the way we think he should. We think the real king couldn't possibly call me to follow him into that or couldn't let that happen, couldn't want me to sacrifice that, to give up that. If you find yourself saying that, you're looking at a king you've made, not at the king that is. He doesn't fit into a box for us neatly. He calls us into hard things. He's unexpected. He's also victorious, right? In the midst of all this suffering, we must cling to the fact that the glory and the victory are still the final word. It's not what we'd expect. It's not easy, but it does end in glory. We're not doomed in our suffering, but we cling to the promise that God can redeem our suffering, that he can make it glorious. When you're in the midst of suffering, think about the cross, the most unjust, evil, offensive event in human history. And God used it to bring about the most beautiful, glorious, and life-saving event in history. If he can redeem something so evil into something glorious, I don't know how and I don't know why, but he can redeem your sufferings too. The sufferings are not the final word. He's victorious. Backing out of the end of our passage to the start of our passage, we also see a patient king, a gentle king, right? In the midst of all the sufferings and glory, we see him taking time needed for his disciples to understand who he is. Someone doing such cosmically important work like bringing salvation to the universe, we don't think they'd waste their time on normal things, right? The president of the United States has no idea who I am. If you're a student at the university, the president of the university does not know who you are, right? The president of the organization I work for, I'm pretty sure doesn't know who I am, right? Though important people don't pay attention to normal people like us, right? But Jesus takes the time to help his disciples see who he is. He leads them through this process. They don't get it. And so he does it again, right? He's patient with them. He's gentle with them. He's intense with them. He's pushing with them. He's not content to let them remain aloof, but he takes the time they need to help them understand it. Our king is not one who ignores normal people. He patiently and personally meets us and teaches us and touches us. And finally, he's the good king. The difference between our king and every other king we could follow is that he's good. Brian brought this up um, in our first sermon on Mark, but it's so important and I think so beautifully uh, stated that it's worth bringing up again. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when, when the kids find out that Aslan the king is a lion, not a human, they all ask, they ask, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, who's kind of been their guide, he looks at them funny and says, safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. This, if I had to synthesize today's passage into one idea, it would be this. Our king is not safe, but he's good. Following him is not safe but it's good. He'll call you into suffering, but it's not because he doesn't care about suffering. It's not because he's above it. He entered into suffering first. Every other king or kingdom that you could follow would sacrifice a subject to save the life of the king. But this is the only kingdom where the king says, I will lay down my life for the sake of my subject. 
He's going to confront you to call you out in sin and rebellion, but he'll welcome you back with open arms. He demands total allegiance from you. You can't have any other kings, but he'll give you all of himself. He's given you his allegiance first. This is our king. He's not what we, always what we want him to be, but he's what we need him to be. He's not safe, but he's good. He's going to call us into sufferings. He's going to call us into things that are painful, but it's good. So what do we do with this? I want us to um, kind of close this way. I want us to reflect on the type of king that Jesus is and ask yourself, just like the disciples, where do you have the right word but the wrong concept, right? If you're a believer, you've already said, okay, yeah, Jesus is my king and he's my savior and he's all these things to me. Um, but where are you missing aspects of who he is? Maybe it's one of the, uh, the things I listed about what, what kind of king he is that you haven't really internalized. Maybe you're not believing that he's a king who demands your full allegiance, right? Yeah, I follow King Jesus, but I follow some other kings too. Career advancement, people-pleasing, financial security. Your heart is committed to two kings, and you need to realize Jesus is jealously calling you to full allegiance. He's the only king. What are your other kings? Or maybe it's hard for you to reconcile the fact that he's a suffering king, and he's calling you into suffering. And maybe you've been ignoring God's call or invitation to you because it is hard. It is painful, and you don't want to follow him into it, or you don't even believe that he it couldn't possibly be God calling me to that because it seems so hard. Maybe it's really hard for you right now to believe that he's a victorious king, right? As we've said a lot this morning, this has been a rough year for a lot of us. It's been brutal. And maybe you're losing hope that he can actually be good in the midst of all this suffering. Look at him and at the cross until you meet the king who doesn't promise to remove your suffering, but he promises to redeem it and bring glory out of it. These are things that are easy to believe up here, but hard to believe in here. I don't know if I really fully believe this in my heart, that no matter what suffering I go through, that I can still believe Jesus is good. A former coworker of mine, um, who was on staff with InterVarsity for a number of years, has an 18-month-old who has brain cancer. He's been uh, going through chemo for about nine months, and he may survive, he may not. Um, and I've never met his son, but knowing I have a kid who's only about a year older, could I go through that and still believe that God is good? I don't know. I want to say yes. I hope I would, but I'm not sure I could. Right? But this passage, the cross, calls us to believe that no matter what the suffering is, even at the very cost of the Son of God being murdered, we can believe that he is good. Is this sunk into my heart enough that I can say, just like Job, no matter what, though he slay me, yet I will trust him? I don't know, but I need this to sink into my life. I need this to sink into my heart and mind so that when I do encounter that deep of suffering, I can say, I still believe that God is good. If this passage is real, if the death and resurrection of Jesus is real, if this is what it means for Jesus to be the suffering king, then I know whatever comes to pass, I have a king who loves me, and who has ultimate power even over death itself. And so I know I can trust him, even in the moments where I can't imagine how it could lead to glory. Following Jesus is not safe, but it's good. Let me pray. Father, our hearts and minds are split as we um, want to follow you, but Lord, we also want it to be easy. And we want it to be simple, and it's often not. 
And we pray that the, uh, whatever you have for us from this text, Lord, the reality that you are not safe, that you call us to follow you into sufferings, but you are the good king. You're the king who lays down his life for his subjects, Lord, that that would be the most real, the most true thing for us. And that through that, we will be, may be able to trust you, um, to depend on you, and to know that you're working and moving and that you're redeeming even when everything seems hopeless. Father, let this sink into our hearts, um, not just as a concept, but a reality for us to live. Amen.